Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. Co-host today is Sarah Whitmire, WFIU's News Bureau Chief. Today we're going to talk about the elections at the state and national level. We have four very distinguished guests with us today. I'm very, very happy to welcome to the program Marjorie Hershey, Professor Emeritus at Indiana University's Department of Political Science, Paul Helmke, Professor of Practice at the O'Neill School at IU and Director of the Civic Leaders Center. And he's also the former mayor of Fort Wayne. Kevin Brown is joining us today. Kevin is the Richard S. Melvin Professor of Law at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. And our fourth guest is Brian Howey from Howey Politics, Indiana. He's a publisher and, and he's an Indiana political columnist. So it's great to have you all with us today. If uh, our listeners at home want to contact us, you can do so by sending us a note to, tw to Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. I want to start with um, Marjorie Hershey, who's been with us numerous times over the years talking about politics and elections. And then uh, my, uh, my second question will be to Paul Helmke. It's actually the same question. But what makes this such a different year for elections? Margie? Well, um, it's certainly been an interesting one. Uh, I was struck yesterday by the presidential debate in which um, the dominant reaction seemed to be that President Trump should be congratulated for sounding presidential. And it struck me that when a president of the United States is congratulated for sounding presidential, we sort of lowered the bar quite a bit. I think that uh, this is certainly different from 2016 in some ways that um, we probably tend to forget right now. Clearly, Vice President Biden, this is his race to lose. He has been ahead in a, in a very remarkably steady way over the last three or four months. And whenever I say that, I think the reaction immediately is, well, isn't that the way we thought things were at around this time in 2016? Um, no, actually, it isn't. So let me just briefly mention a few ways in which this is different from 2016. First of all, keep in mind that the polls were correct in 2016. Uh, the polls at around this time showed about a three percentage point lead for Hillary Clinton in the popular vote. The problem was that that was the popular vote and we don't elect presidents using the popular vote. We use the electoral vote to do that, which is determined by state votes, not by national votes. And currently, a Democrat needs to lead in the popular vote, typically by about four to five percentage points in order to win the electoral college. We can talk about that later if people would like. In addition, it was extraordinarily close, much closer than it later seemed in 2016. If 78,000 votes total in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania had switched sides, we would be discussing the re-election campaign of Hillary Clinton right now, rather than Donald Trump. Um, Biden's lead is larger now than Clinton's was in 2016, and it's been much more stable than Clinton's was in 2016. In 2016, an unusually high percentage of people told poll takers that they were undecided close to the time of the election, close to 15%. Now that percentage is very small. And that high percentage in 2016 
probably included a number of so-called shy Trump voters um, who wanted to vote for President Trump but didn't want to tell anybody that they were doing so. Um, things are different now. We're accustomed to hearing a lot of loud voices for President Trump. We were not at that time. And uh, the shy Trump voters don't seem to exist nearly as much in the polls. So that means it all comes down to turnout right now between now and election day. A lot of that is already baked in. We've already probably seen about one third of the vote cast by now. But uh, what happens between now and election day, it's obvious to say, is going to determine the outcome. All right. Thank you. And Paul Helmke, I saw that, you know, some quotes from you just yesterday where I think you ended, it was a story in the Indianapolis Star, I think it ended with you being quoted saying this is a year unlike any other presidential election. So I guess it's sort of the same question to you. Well, uh, 2020 is uh, is a lot different than anything we've seen, and and, and one of the main reasons is the uh, is the coronavirus. It uh, it really um, you know it's made campaigning different uh, for the the, the candidates. Uh, we don't know how that's played out. Uh, the, the Democrats uh, supposedly have been doing a lot less knocking on doors because of the virus. Republicans have done those. Uh, how's that going to translate to turnout? Uh, is one of the issues. We've um, we've got concerns with uh, being able to vote because of the coronavirus. Uh, Indiana uh, did not uh, continue the, the 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 position they took during the primary to allow no excuse absentee voting. So now you have to have uh, one of eleven excuses for absentee voting. So we've seen a lot more uh, early voting, perhaps because of that. Uh, How is that going to shake out? Uh, it looks like it's mainly Democrats voting early, but we don't know that for sure. How's that going to affect the way the returns come in on election day? We don't know that for sure. So the, the, the coronavirus just creates a lot of uncertainties, and, and, and that's the main thing that's different. But, you know, I, I want to mention two other things. Marjorie covered a lot of the, of, of the background, but uh, a couple points. One is incumbent presidents generally get elected. Uh, in my lifetime, uh, the only incumbents that did not get elected were Gerald Ford, who actually had never been elected. So he, he had filled the Nixon term, and Jimmy Carter. And, uh, you know, other than Jimmy Carter losing in, in 1980, incumbents generally get elected in, the, in the, this country. And generally, uh, parties have at least two terms before they change. Um, and again, the only time that there, were, uh, there weren't two terms for a, a party, at least two terms for a party, uh, excuse me, George W. Uh, George Bush Sr. Also, also got defeated. So it, it, it hasn't happened that often. But generally, uh, political parties have at least two terms. And the only time it didn't was Jimmy Carter. Uh, when, when Bush Sr. got defeated, Republicans had actually had three terms. When Ford got defeated, the Republicans had had two terms. So generally, uh, parties get two terms. Generally, the incumbent gets uh, reelected. So that's, that's something in Trump's favor. On the other hand, um, generally presidents that uh, get into office by winning the Electoral uh, College, but not the popular vote, generally get defeated the next time. Uh, the only one in the U.S. history who wasn't defeated the next time was uh, George W. Bush in 2004, and that election actually came down just to Ohio. Uh, was was a was a close one too, but uh, in the in the past, if you got elected uh, uh, with uh, with the electoral college not the popular vote, like Benjamin Harrison did, uh, uh, like um, Rutherford Hayes or John Quincy Adams, uh, you lost the next time around. So uh, it's it's tough for somebody to, to win. Uh, a, a second election when you didn't win the Electoral College the first time. But uh, a lot of uncertainties. Uh, the two oldest candidates uh, in U.S. history are running at the same time. I, when I looked at the debates last night, I thought I, I told my uh, grandson uh, I'd watched the uh, Kennedy-Nixon debates when, when I was his age. And I said the combined age of the two candidates in 1960 was like uh, uh, 78 or 77 or 78 when you added the two, I mean, 87 or 88 when you added the ages of Kennedy and Nixon together, that's only 10 years older than Biden is, the two of them together. So uh, a lot of differences this year, a lot of uncertainties. People think they know what's going to happen, but uh, you never know till they count them all and they certify them. So I want to bring Kevin Brown in, and there are a couple different areas that uh, I'm going to throw out to you, but you really can go whatever direction you want about this election, Kevin. But, you know, one is there are all sorts of potential legal fights, it seems to me, about 
there have been already about voter suppression and about um, you know whether the the president is going to accept the result if he loses and you know all sorts of different issues along those lines. So, you know, when you, as an observer, you know, from your, with your legal background, I mean, what can you tell us about the legalities and, you know, what we might see during this election year? And then, you know, the other thing I want, I want to make sure we cover with you um, sometime during the program is, you know, after George Floyd and with social unrest going on in this, this country today, you know, what difference you think that might make for the elections? So, you can pick and choose whatever you want to talk about first. Okay. Well, um, let me, of course, as a law professor, have a tendency to look at this, uh, not just in terms of politics, but also in terms of, of the Supreme Court and uh, its impact on the day-to-day -day lives of Americans. So, you know, if you think about the protests that you saw, the Black Lives Matters protests coming out of the George Floyd killing and the other killings that we've had this summer, um, it, it really begins to focus you in on the law and, and not just particularly the law, but if you think about qualified governmental immunity, uh, which has been a shield for police engaged in these horrendous acts that we've seen, uh, qualified governmental immunity is something that was interpreted and created by the U.S. Supreme Court. So on the one hand, we have these massive political protests that have occurred throughout the country this summer. Um, but on the other hand, assuming that, that, that just Judge Barrett is, is confirmed, we will have the most conservative Supreme Court on racial issues probably since the 1940s. Uh, there will be six conservatives and three liberals. Um, and which, which means there's a limit to how much legislation can do because the Supreme Court will have the power to strike down legislation. Um, and of course, another issue out there is, is affirmative action. Um, we have the Harvard affirmative action case where Harvard's affirmative action policies have been challenged. Now, admittedly, the challenge was by Asian students but the remedy that's being asked for is no consideration of race at all in the admissions process. And, and what that means then is, is this is a case that Harvard won at the district court level. Oral arguments have been held at the First Circuit, so probably sometime this spring we'll get a decision from the First Circuit, which almost certainly will uphold what Harvard has done. Uh, but that means sometime this time next fall, we'll be looking at this case probably at the Supreme Court again. And then the whole conversation becomes about the continued legality of affirmative action, which is absolutely critical to desegregating our public colleges, our colleges and universities, especially our elite ones, particularly for African-Americans. Um, so to me, I'm not just watching the presidential election, but I'm also watching the Senate. Uh, because I think that if you think about something like affirmative action, it may only survive if the Democrats both win the presidency, the Senate, and then take the extraordinary and unprecedented step of adding justices to the US Supreme Court. Yeah, that was going to be my my follow up question. I mean, how likely, how likely do you think that that if the if the Senate is taken over by the Democrats, I mean, you you said it's an it would be an unprecedented step. How likely do you think that that would happen? You at this moment, I just don't know. Um, in in a sense, one could look at the way the Republicans dealt with Garrett with with Judge. Um, Merrick and, and what they're doing here with Judge Barrett. And you could say that, well, the Republicans are the ones who fired the first salvo. But there's no question that expanding out the Supreme Court would be viewed as a declaration of war. I mean, this would be an extraordinary step. But as I said, the problem is, if you don't take that extraordinary step, we're going to be in a situation where our political process is far more liberal 
than our Supreme Court. And, and perhaps the only time we, we, we will have gotten to that kind of place uh, would be during Roosevelt's administration where Roosevelt too attempted to pack the Supreme Court. All right. I'm sure we'll get back to some of that issue uh, later in the program, but I, I want to bring Brian Howie in because this is, you know, this is a, an interesting election, you know, around the country, obviously, but is there anything unusual about what's going to happen in Bloomington? I mean, we, I think that are in Indiana, I'm not, I'm sorry, not Bloomington, but in, in Indiana, is there, I, I think most polls show that Holcomb is well ahead I would assume that Indiana is um, still going to go for Trump. The fifth district seems to be an interesting area. What what about all these areas? Yeah, Brian, I think. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, can you? Okay. Yeah, yeah I was fascinated to find uh, Mike Pence, uh, the vice president, coming to, to Paul Helmke's old hometown of Fort Wayne uh, yesterday. That didn't seem to be like a, a very good use of time when we have so many swing states. Now, I understand the Fort Wayne market feeds into, uh, bleeds into Ohio and Michigan a little bit. Um, but uh, I've had operatives tell me that uh, they expect Trump to carry Indiana more in the 7 to 8% range as opposed to that 19% uh, plurality. But again, why was Mike Pence uh, in Indiana, you know, for, for about, I don't know, 18 hours over the past two days? Second of all, we've got the libertarian gubernatorial candidate running a statewide uh, TV and radio campaign and the Democratic uh, nominee, Woody Myers, you know, radio silent. Uh, uh, the two polls I've seen in the gubernatorial race has Holcomb up by 40 and 30 percent. And if you're a Democrat, that, that bodes ill for down ballot races. Um, uh, and I, I think we, we kind of began to see that Woody Myers was kind of a, a straw candidate early on when uh, at the end of 2019, he submitted a, a, his finance report and it had only $14,000 in it. He has $80,000 going into the home stretch here. So um, if, you, if you're Christina Hale running in the 5th Congressional District or, or if, uh, I'm following about 20 uh, Indiana House and Senate races, uh, and I, I'm not sure that the Democrats, even if Biden wins in a landslide, are going to be able to to pick up many uh, Indiana House and, and Senate seats. So, um, so the good the news isn't really good for Democrats on, on the statewide front. Nationally, uh, the thing that's really sticking out to me is uh, no two, no two election cycles are the same. Um, if you look at uh, the Real Clear Politics national polling averages. Uh, Hillary Clinton had a 3.9 percent lead about this time uh, four years ago, and and Joe Biden's uh, up uh, almost eight percent. And then I'm looking at the, the battleground states: uh, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, where Biden is is either at or or at 49 percent or 50 percent, and and that's kind of different than than what we saw in 2016. All right. Um, so I want to follow up just really quickly. So you talked about the legislature and you know, the Republicans right now have uh, 40 of 50 Senate seats. They have, I think, uh, 67 of, of 100 House seats in Indiana. So they have super majorities in both the House and the Senate. Do you, if the Democrats, how many, how many seats would the Democrats have to pick up? And is it likely that they can to break those super majorities? Well, they, they, I'm watching the suburban seats up in Crown Point, uh, the South Bend Elkhart area, and then um, uh, Indianapolis uh, and Hamilton County. There, there seem to be about five to six seats that are in play, but um, I, I was reading the Anderson Herald Bolton the other day and, and Democrats are, uh, are, are having to defend uh, Terry Austin and, uh, um, and, and another uh, seat in, in that area. So I'm not sure that the, the Democrats, even if Biden were to win in a landslide, are going to are going to make uh, the end of the supermajority status. I, I, I just think that's that's real doubtful right now. Okay. There, 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 there is a, a house seat in, in Fort Wayne that uh, I was in the Fort Wayne area most of the summer, the, the Martin Carball uh, 
Kyle Miller race. It, it's a rematch. This is Win Moses' old seat. Uh, um, th there is more money being spent at, uh, apparently on TV on this race than there is in, from either congressional candidate, anybody else. When I watch TV uh, in Fort Wayne uh, at night, I, I, I see Biden ads, I see Trump ads, and I see state rep ads for Martin Carbaugh and his opponent. It's, it's amazing. So I, that's one seat that uh, I, I think is competitive and could flip. I agree. Brian, why do you think it is that Woody Myers has really struggled to gain any sort of a foothold? I guess from my perspective, it seems like this could be a great year for a candidate like Woody Myers, given his um, background with the State Department of Health. You know, his resume was perfect for this election cycle. You know, uh, uh, he was a health commissioner of Indiana uh, during the, uh, uh, the Ryan White uh, AIDS epidemic. Um, I, I thought on paper he was going to be a good matchup uh, with Governor uh, Holcomb, and he, I just don't know. You know, he, he says the pandemic has has uh, has clipped his uh, fundraising appeal, and yet that that fourteen thousand dollars at the end of twenty nineteen, he kicked off his campaign uh, in mid summer of twenty nineteen, and then when when you show up with only fourteen thousand dollars at the end of the year, that tells me that he was either lazy or didn't take. Uh, uh, the fundraising component seriously. And so, you know, again, the, the fact that the Libertarian is running a statewide media campaign and the Democratic nominee isn't, is just a, a, a glaring footnote for, for this, this cycle. I don't understand it. Yeah, my, my sense is Holcomb's more worried, uh, and I don't think he's worried, but I think if he w when he was worried, if he was worried, it was uh, Rainwater taking away too many votes to, uh, that uh, Myers might sneak in, but uh, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Holcomb's, uh, Holcomb's uh, had a lot of ads up. Uh, Holcomb, I think, is perceived as, uh, as being um, you know, less extreme than, uh, than, than, than Governor Pence was. Uh, most people assume uh, or seem to perceive Holcomb as having done a pretty decent job on the, on the coronavirus. He, he's been attacked by both sides. Oftentimes when you're in the middle, that's dangerous. But I think in this situation, it's made him look better to, uh, to people across the spectrum. But uh, I, I think the concern for, for the Republicans on the governor's race would be uh, rainwater taking more votes than they plan on. We have four great guests joining us today on Noon Edition. We're talking about the election with Marjorie Hershey, Professor Emeritus of the Indiana University Department of Political Science, Paul Helmke, Professor of Practice at the O'Neill School. He's also the director of the Civic Leaders Center, former mayor of Fort Wayne. Kevin Brown, the Richard S. Melvin Professor of Law at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. And Brian Howey from Howey Politics, Indiana. He's a publisher and he's an Indiana political columnist. If you have questions for any of our four guests, please send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I'm gonna ask Margie to answer this first, but any of you can jump in here. The, according to the Pew Research Center, the top three issues for Americans in elections, in these elections, are the economy, healthcare, and Supreme Court appointments. Um, is that uh, consistent with the way you would see this election? Margie? I think you're muted, Margie. Sorry about that. Um, I think that, yes, it's true, but that hides a very important distinction, which is that um, these issues are disproportionately important to the two parties. Um, Democrats, by and large, are much more concerned about health care and about the coronavirus pandemic in particular than Republicans are. According to polls, everything that I'm saying has to do with the evidence that we find as political scientists. And uh, particularly when we look at um, some of the other issues, we find that they are much more important to Republicans, and that has to do especially with the Supreme Court. When pollsters ask questions about um, the appointments to the Supreme Court matter to you, they are much more intense as a part of the feelings of Republican respondents than they are of Democrats. So the two parties, in other words, the two sets of candidates are raising different types of issues from one another. Kevin Brown, that, that uh, what Margie just said about the Supreme Court appointments um, is sort of 
consistent with what you're saying, only, you know, she's saying that the Republicans are much more intensely interested sure. in that. Does sure. that surprise you? Well, it doesn't. Um, I think they may be more attuned to what has happened with the Supreme Court under under President Trump. Um, once again, if you if you look at our court right now, we only have nine members of our court, and the oldest member right now is 83 years old, and that's uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, who's one of the uh, most uh, dependable liberals on the court. Um, if you look at the conservative justices, the youngest, the oldest conservative justice on our court is, is Clarence Thomas at 72. So with Barrett's appointment, the, in the next 15 to, in certainly the next 15 years, it's likely that the only justice that'll come off the court will be Stephen Breyer. Um, that means you'll have a Supreme Court that will not necessarily reflect the values uh, of Democrats as much as they'll reflect the values of Republicans, even if the Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And, you know, if you think about voter suppression, so many of these voter suppression cases end up in front of the courts, uh, and they're being determined by, right now, the, the Republicans. And we'll have a conservative Supreme Court, not just for this election cycle for president, but for the next one and the one after that, and probably the one after that as well. Um, so to, to me, certainly, uh, this issue on the Supreme Court is, is absolutely critical. But once again, even if the Democrats take control of all three houses of the political branch, Without control of the court, there will be that constraint on what they can do. On the on the on the issue of um, of the three branches of the of the you know the government, uh, one thing that uh, and this is actually an Indiana issue uh, as well, but the diversity in our legislative branches is not particularly good. I mean, it's still mostly controlled by um, white men, mostly older white men. And so, uh, Kevin Brown, do you think that if, uh, you know, I know you've, you've said that the, the legislat legislature is not going to be as important as the Supreme Court, but do you think if the legislative branch was had more diversity on it, that it could make um, differences? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any question it would. I, I'd probably say the one legislative branch that does have quite a bit of diversity actually is Congress. Um, we now have 53 black members of Congress, more than we've ever had before. And, and they're more than 10% than of, of, of the House. Um, but, but certainly diversity in the legislature generates different perspectives on the law. And, you know, when we've been talking about in our society this summer, uh, concepts of institutional racism, those are gonna be concepts that minorities are much more likely to have faced and experienced and know about the majority legislators. All right. Can, can I, I, I wanted to jump in yeah, here just a ahead, second Paul. on, on pol politics and the courts. Uh, uh, and, and I think Margie's um, recounting of the, of the poll and, and what Democrats care about the court versus Republicans is is an important one. I, and it was particularly, and it's been that way for a number of cycles. And I think this is where the Democrats have dropped the ball. Um, four years ago, a lot of folks that uh, didn't like Hillary, uh, you know, whether it was the Bernie bros or just they weren't enthusiastic about her or uh, whatever, it was sort of like, well, we don't really care. What's the difference? You know, we can get uh, we can get by with Trump being in there. And besides, Hillary's supposed to win, so we're not going to vote. Uh, uh, they didn't focus on the courts at all. Um, and the Republicans have focused on the courts for a number of cycles, not just the Supreme Court, the, uh, the, the, the district courts, the courts of appeal. And uh, as, 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 as Kevin was saying, you know, that is crucial, but the Democrats have pretty much sort of conceded it. it uh, you know, uh, Trump keeps saying oh, Obama left all these seats open. It was actually McConnell blocking uh, a number of those seats, but the Democrats uh, probably should have made uh, filling the, 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 the court seats uh, from the district court on up more of a priority uh, uh, early on. Uh, that's how they ended up in this seat. A lot of people forget Amy uh, Coney Barrett 
only got to the Seventh Circuit because uh, Mitch McConnell blocked Myra Selby, uh, of African American uh, on the Indiana Supreme Court, from ever uh, from uh, processing through the, the nomination process. So there are consequences to not focusing on the court, and I think uh, a lot of Democrats and progressives, as, as Kevin said, are going to see the, the the cost of that now. Well. You know, along these lines, I want to test my own reality because I, I've been listening to a, a lot of um, the Democrats now saying we just shouldn't be naming a Supreme Court justice this close to, or, or you know, in, in this when there's a, a presidential election going on. Now, obviously, it's because it's this very close, but it seems like that's only half of this discussion because, as Kevin Brown brought up, the Merrick Garland case, which was. Started in what February of 2016. Yeah, 2016. So um, it seems like it's not you know, the Republicans are using this as well. The Democrats are hypocritical. You know, here's what they said back then. Here's what they're saying now. And the Democrats don't haven't seemed to sort of make the case that this is more. This is about hypocrisy more than. No, I. I, 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 I this is. They should have been making this case four years ago. First of all, it's, uh, you know, Garland was the first one never to get a hearing. Um, they, you know, they didn't even give him a hearing. It's not that they voted him down. They didn't give him a hearing. And I, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, you had Lindsey Graham and, and so many others saying, you know, you don't do this in a presidential year. Now they've uh, switched it. Well, we don't do it in a presidential year unless the president and the Senate are the same primary. Therefore, it's, there's a precedent. What I'm surprised the Democrats haven't pointed out more often is never in our history mm-hmm. have we confirmed a justice to the Supreme Court this close to the election. The closest ever was on July 27th, and uh, that was uh, that was a long time ago. We, we, we've had two July confirmations. This is three months after that. We have never waited this uh, till, till a week before the election. So uh, why the Democrats didn't make more of a deal out of Garland, I don't know. Why they didn't make more of a deal of, of the, the lower court uh, seats, I don't know. Now it's a little late to try to be uh, asking for it. But uh, uh, as, as Kevin Brown pointed out, I think this is a crucial thing. Uh, the uh, you know, you, there's different ways you can argue that the, the Constitution does not set the size of the Supreme Court. It has varied over history. Uh, so there is precedent for changing the numbers on the Supreme Court. Uh, there was one argument I, or, or one historical point made. I, I heard one time that we used to have one justice for every one of the circuit courts of appeal. We have added circuit courts of appeal since we went to nine. So you could argue that as a precedent. I think Biden's response on let's appoint a commission and look at all these ideas is probably a good one. I get I get so many students every year that say, why aren't there term limits? Why aren't there? Why isn't there some process where each president gets to appoint at least one? Um, we have with politicizing the courts as much as we have, we've given the courts this crucial role and uh, it's something we're going to have to deal with. Kevin, Paul, you I, think, I think you're absolutely right, Paul. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the problem the Democrats have is that in fact, the constitution doesn't say anything about a, a president not being able to nominate a justice uh, close to the time of an election when the president and the senator of the same party or anything of the kind. The constitution just says the president shall nominate and the Senate shall confirm or not confirm. So the time that the Democrats had to object was properly four years ago, not today. There's not much of a constitutional ground to stand on. What we found is that the Republicans are playing power politics now. This is a very bald um, set of moves in which they're saying, if we can do it, we're going to do it. Uh, We don't really care whether or not um, this plays by the rules that we've used in the past. A lot of Democrats are reluctant to do that. And I think that the result has been that um, there's been an imbalance in terms of the two parties, the polarization that we've seen is what political scientists call asymmetric. It's been more on the Republican side than on the Democratic side. That's going to be painful to remedy, but the remedy has to be found. Marjorie, when you're talking about playing by the rules, and certainly we've talked about Mitch McConnell already during this conversation, but it, what do you think about the race that he's in right now? Does does he stand a chance of, of not winning re-election? He's been in that seat, I'm sure you can tell me, for how many years now? A long time, I think, is the answer, Sarah. Um, 
No, I don't think that there is a very realistic chance that McConnell will lose. Um, and uh, that's another challenge of targeting, that McConnell's is not one of the seats in Kentucky uh, being a very red state that's easy for the Democrats to target. But he's a very important leader, just as the loss of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not just so much the loss of a liberal justice, it was the loss of the leader of the liberal faction on the court. And that makes a big difference in terms of the dynamics of the way the institution works. Brian, Howie, I wanna ask you about um, some of what we just talked about with power politics being played by the Republicans right now. I mean, Indiana's in a position, has been in a position for quite a few years where the Republicans have total control. So how would you characterize, you know, their willingness to play power politics? And do you think that they will be emboldened by what's been going on nationally and perhaps uh, exert their power even more after this election? Well, I, the, the, what I'm going to be looking at is what they did in uh, after the 2010 election, which is Mitch Daniels was reelected by 58% of the vote in 2008, but he didn't bring the Indiana House with him. Uh, they, they regained the House in 2010, and then when the maps uh, came up for, for reapportionment, uh, they drew uh, uh, districts that uh, have resulted in uh, uh, um, seven of the nine congressional seats safely in Republican hands and uh, uh, the supermajorities in both the Indiana House and Senate. Uh, they're poised to uh, draw the maps next year. And, uh, and Indiana has essentially become, you know, a one-party state because of that. Um, there's a, when, when you have 150 seats and only 20 of them are, are competitive, um, any given cycle, that, that tells me that uh, uh, the, the, the balance of power has shifted. I, I looked into the local level and found out that 90% of county commissioners in Indiana are Republican. Uh, the, the Republican Party holds a historic number of uh, mayoral seats. Uh, they hold 75% uh, or more of the county uh, constitutional seats, you know, like recorder and um, sheriff and, and everything. So we're, we're becoming a one-party state, and that's, I think, because of, of the reapportionment. Um, and and I, I expect that to continue uh, next year. Yeah, it's always good for people in Bloomington to hear that because, of course, Monroe County is in kind of a one-party county as well. You know, three of all three commissioners here are Democrats. So of your 90%, Monroe County's probably got a pretty high percentage of of the 10% of Democrats. So when you look at the Indiana House, um, uh, the, they, the Democrats are relegated to Lake County, Marion County, St. Joe, and the, and the college towns. Um, uh, there, there are very few rural uh, Democrat seats left. And, and it has it's been that way now. Uh, we've had super majorities before, but to have them spread over two or three election cycles uh, that that's really extraordinary and, and, and a, and a concentration of power. So are any of the congressional and, 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 seats, uh, let me ask uh, Brian first, um, and you can also join in Paul, but are any of the congressional seats in play? It, uh, it seems like uh, district five might be, or, or any others. Yeah. Uh, the fifth congressional district, that's Christina Hale, the, the Lieutenant governor nominee uh, from 2016 and Victoria Sparts, the, strange situation there. She was a state senator who was kind of uh, wasn't going to be renominated, and so she opted for the congressional seat, actually moving up. Uh, that's pure toss-up. I, I think it could go either way. Uh, it, it fits the profile of a suburban seat. So it, when the polls close in Indiana, uh, first in the nation at 6 p.m. On, on November 3rd, I think there's going to be a lot of attention to the 5th Congressional District. I've, I've put also the, the second and the ninth uh, as kind of outlier districts um, that if, if Biden were to muster, you know, uh, kind of a Reagan 84 kind of landslide, um, uh, you might see those districts come into play, but I, I, I doubt it at this point. I, I, I think the fifth is the, is the only one that, uh, 
that is attracting the money and the and the national attention. And that and again, that goes back to the maps that were drawn, uh, you know, nine years ago. Paul. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, and, and Brian's made this point uh, uh, very well, but the, how the maps are drawn is crucial, and and, and that's why uh, again I think the you know you, you people need to look at uh, whether there's those super majorities and whether there's any chance at all for the Democrats to help have some input in these maps. It's uh, it's interesting when you do see Democrats elected. Uh, Phil Giaquina, who's the uh, uh, one of the leaders of the Democrats in the Indiana House, Fort Wayne, he's unopposed. Uh, Shelley Yoder uh, moving into the state Senate seat. She's unopposed. There are Democrats scattered around the state, even in places like Fort Wayne that are unopposed. And that's because when you can control the process of redistricting, you 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 pack all the Democrats into into certain districts, and then they get reelected. They, they get elected in their primaries. Uh, but then you've got Republicans being able to control all the other seats. So that's affected the legislature. That's likely going to continue unless we ever move to a, a nonpartisan redistricting scheme. And I, I agree with Brian. I think the only House seat that. Uh, that is competitive is is the fifth, and I, I think there's a decent chance for Christina Hale here. If uh, if Biden runs stronger than Hillary did, uh, and you look at what's happened in that area with uh, J.D. Ford uh, getting elected to the state Senate, with Zionsville getting a Democratic mayor, um, I, I think that's one of the seats that could go uh, for uh, for the Democrat. And if I think that happens, it, it's showing that uh, Trump's numbers certainly are going to be a lot weaker uh, across the country than they were four years ago. And if I could just add, add one more thing about the, the power of these current maps, which is other than uh, Jackie Walorski winning Joe Donnelly's open uh, second congressional seat in, in 2012 when, when Joe opted to run for the U.S. Senate, there has not been a single uh, uh, congressional seat change hands. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a historic first. There's no, it's not the bloody eighth anymore. Uh, you know, the, the, the days of Baron Hill and Mike Sodrell uh, trading that seat are, are gone. That's uh, it, just become uncompetitive and, and not really good for my business. Kevin Brown, um, are there any legal challenges um, currently working to redistricting? I know there have been legal challenges before. Well, yeah, so this is an issue of political gerrymandering. Um, and, and the Supreme Court has, at least in a very close opinion, um, more or less given that the okay. Uh, so once again, that takes us back to the impact of this election on the Supreme Court. And, and more importantly, I would think uh, what happens after the election, assuming the Democrats get control, because these things are not going to change when what's behind them are constitutional decisions. Margie? I, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that this is not just an Indiana phenomenon. Um, this is a national phenomenon and it's not just redistricting. That's the problem here. We've seen um, the substantial decline in the last 20 years in competitive house races over time and to a lesser extent in competitive Senate races. Most areas of the United States are now functionally one party. The reason that it's competitive at the national level is that the number of one party Democratic areas is pretty similar to the number of non-competitive Republican areas. And obviously redistricting makes a big difference. The 2010 elections that Democrats lost so badly were devastating in their ability to affect the redistricting and the reapportionment for the coming decade. But just solving redistricting won't completely do it. One of the challenges here is that we've also seen population movement consistent with partisanship. Big cities are very dominantly democratic and rural areas are very dominantly Republican. And that's to the disadvantage of Democrats, because if in a big city like Chicago or Indianapolis, you're winning by 80 or 85% as a Democratic candidate, that's a wasteful margin. That means you've got 30 or 35% more votes than you need in order to win. If you could redistribute that 30 or 35% of the votes to rural areas, 
they would become much more competitive and much less Republican. But of course, that's not within any party's power. You can't just simply move a bunch of folks from one place to another. So the disproportionate geographic location of Democrats and Republicans um, puts a limit on our ability to have more competitive races within states and within more local areas. Sarah? Um, Marjorie, maybe you can answer this, but do you expect that on election night we are going to know who the winners are? Or are we still going to be waiting for votes to be tallied? Um, and then it's probably too early to say, but I'd like to know just your opinion on what we think the days after the election might look like. I've heard stories of people saying they're going to hoard some food and just be prepared in case <laughs> There's nothing like a time of anxiety to generate all kinds of hysterical stories, but um, I'm sure that there will be a lot of efforts to call the election on election night, but I think that the biggest hazard here is simply that we have another big party disproportion in terms of the manner of voting. Most Democrats say that they're planning to vote early or by mail. Most Republicans say that they're planning to vote in person on election day. There are a number of states that do not, by state law, allow the counting of mailed or absentee ballots until after the polls close on election day. So that means in a number of states, and this includes a number of the battleground states, the data that are going to come in on election night are going to primarily be those counted at the polls in person, which means that they're going to be more Republican than the vote as a whole. Over time, as the mail ballots and the absentee ballots get counted, the total is going to trend more and more Democratic. And I think we can easily expect that President Trump is going to say, see, this isn't really um, mailed votes coming in, this is fraudulent votes coming in and that we have to stop the count. That's what will open up the possibility of some serious legal challenges, such as the possibility of a state legislature that's Republican and a state that goes for Biden saying, no, we're not going to certify the uh, Democratic electoral votes. We're going to certify our own Republican slate of electoral votes, even though the popular vote went Democratic. And then um, court cases are going to multiply. Let me just jump in real quick here. The, uh, you know, that, that is a possibility. It is sort of the worst case scenario in terms of just uh, you know, stability. Uh, but I, I think there's a decent chance that we'll know on election night. Um, and it, it's sort of like the of early states. If Florida would look like it's it's going to go to Biden or it's going to be close, uh, close even with the absentees out there, if Georgia does the same, if North Carolina does the same, uh, those are three states that Trump carried four years ago. Trump cannot afford to lose more than one state that he cannot afford to lose any of the states he carried four years ago at the most one. So if you if you if Florida, Georgia, or North Carolina flip, uh, then we're going to know something early. Pennsylvania is going to be a tough state to call, but if Michigan, if Michigan and Wisconsin go for Biden, uh, and those are going to be known fairly early and look like they've gone for Biden on with the stuff that they have election day, then pretty much we're going to have a decision by 1130 election night. And okay. I, partic I participated um, in a pointer institute uh, event on the titled the the craziest election night ever, and they they said watch Florida and North Carolina, both those states. Uh, which Trump carried uh, a process their absentee ballots quickly. And mm -hmm. so if those go for Biden, then then we may know on election night. If they don't, yeah. it may be a long time. Okay, I want to give you each about 30 seconds to go. This is the this is uh, kind of a tough question to ask, I guess, but you know, we've seen um, people threatening to kidnap the governor of Michigan and people running around with uh, a lot of automatic weapons and calls for people to watch the voting sites. Um, are you fearful for our democracy with what's going on this election year? About 30 seconds each. And Brian Howie, I'm going to start with you. Well, there's a reason that Dan Coats, uh, uh, after he left the administration, is now taking part in a bipartisan uh, uh, group advertising in battleground states 
uh, talking about needing to to ensure election integrity. And I think, you know, he had a front row seat to the craziness in this administration. And I would keep a, a close eye on, on somebody like Dan Coates. Okay, Kevin Brown? Um, I would say I'm as concerned about democracy and, and the legitimacy of our elections right now than I have ever been in my 64 years. Um, so yes, I am concerned about it, and I really am fearful that Marjorie's uh, scenario is the one that will play out. Margie? I think that there's very good reason to be very concerned about the state of our democracy, but I think what that suggests is that we not sit around and start stockpiling water, but that we try to do something about it. One thing we can do is that if anybody sees any evidence of harassment at the polls, they can call this number, 866-OUR-O-U-R-VOTE, V-O-T-E, which is an election protection hotline. This is a time for all hands on deck. Leave your guns at home. Uh, make sure that everybody's following the rules. All right. And Paul, how do you want you to finish this up? Well, it's I, I, democracy does, and, and our system of government, uh, it doesn't happen automatically. It takes all of us to be concerned, all of us to participate. Uh, we've gotten through tough times in the past, but uh, it takes leadership and it takes involvement. And I, I'd say the number one thing, and this sort of addresses Marjorie's question about where the people are. The more people that participate, the more people that get out to vote, the more people that tell their, talk to their neighbor about voting, that's going to make the system work. And uh, I think we always need to be concerned, but I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that if we participate, if we try, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll still have a good functioning uh, country for some years to come. But it takes each of us to do our part, vote, protest, speak up, but do it in a way that's going to make things go forward. Great conversation, yeah. friends. I appreciate it very much. That was Paul Helmke. We've also heard from Marjorie Hershey, Kevin Brown, and Brian Howie. I want to thank all of our guests for being with us, and I want to thank co-host Sarah Whitmire, producers Benta Boutier, and engineer John Bailey. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.